I got to hang out on Wednesday uh, with a whole bunch of college students, which is so fun. It's one of my favorite things every year when they do church day on the quad at ETBU. Uh, our church was out there, both campuses. We each had a table right next to each other. We got, I mean, it was just great. Uh, we loved it. But I was talking to one girl and, uh, or a little group of girls, and, and I was telling them something about my own college experience uh, and mentioned the, the year 2003. And uh, this girl just like lit up. She's like, <gasps> and I was like, what? And she goes, that's the year I was born. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> If it wasn't the minivan, now I definitely know we are not cool anymore, okay? We're, but I was thinking about college, and I, I remember back in my college days, I spent some of my college years in Waco at Baylor University, and there was an interesting but well-known phenomenon that happened at Baylor uh, where students, and I, this probably doesn't happen at ETBU, so any ETBU students, profs, you know, because here, I know this, you guys are better than this, right? But at Baylor, where the heathens are, uh, there were lots of students who would, uh, wake up on a Sunday morning, pretty late, having had, you know, lots of fun, so to say, that weekend, and, uh, and they would miss church. Uh, but before they went down to the cafeteria for lunch, they would just do all the things, get all totally dressed up, full makeup, church clothes and everything from the dorm room to the cafeteria so that when they got to the cafeteria, all the other students who had gone to church thought they had also been to church. Are you seeing? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that so crazy? <laughs> Just kind of silly. Well, that's exactly the thing that Jesus uh, was saying and warning us against in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible open to Matthew chapter 6, can you imagine someone potentially putting more effort into the appearance of doing the right thing than actually doing the right thing in the first place. Jesus is warning us against this in Matthew chapter 26. So as you turn there, let me remind you of the big truth that Jesus is communicating to us through this sermon, which covers three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're right in the middle and just maybe just on the other side of the middle today. Uh, but the big truth is this, that we were created for a good life under the rule and the reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. That's it. Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7 all go to say the same thing. We were created for a good life. Man, life is a struggle sometimes, right? Life is difficult sometimes. And those things are all realities because of the sin in our world. But God created us for a good life, a truly blessed life. And that life is best lived under his rule and reign where he invites us to participate with him in his eternal kingdom. This is what this sermon is all about. So as Christians, we are to live as the center of the Lord's Prayer, which we just studied last week, which is also happens to be the center of the entire Sermon on the Mount. As Christians, we are to live on earth as it is in heaven. That's the key. That's the, that's the center point, the central point. So what that goes to say is that our purpose, our greatest purpose, our greatest fulfillment in this life comes by living right side up in our upside down world. Jesus shows us what that true righteousness looks like. The problem is no one, not even the most religious people today or even in Jesus' day, could have met Jesus' standard for righteousness. But the good news is this, Jesus gives us true righteousness. He takes our unrighteousness and he replaces it with his perfect 
righteousness. A righteousness that's not achieved by us, but a righteousness that we receive from him. A righteousness from the outside in that then transforms us from the inside out. This is what it's all about. So by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 16, we understand why Jesus is warning us about this false righteousness, right? The same kind of false righteousness that fooled my good friends over in Waco at Baylor who dressed themselves up to appear righteous. Jesus says this is actually unrighteousness and it yields no reward with God. So today we're going to look at this third and final example of what you might call a righteousness for show. And the third example is fasting, fasting. And we're going to see what Jesus says true righteousness looks like. So look with me at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read together verses 16 through 18. It says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting, it says, whenever you fast, again, this is the third time this pattern is repeated in Matthew chapter six. Whenever you fast, fasting was an assumed religious ritual. Uh, For the disciples of Jesus, for the crowd that surrounded Jesus, for the Jews in the first century, it was just normal. Uh, It's not normal for us, is it? Uh, Fasting is actually kind of one of those deals that people don't quite understand. Uh, In fact, I was texting with my uncle in Fort Worth last week about an insurance deal. Everybody's got an insurance guy in their family, right? My uncle is my insurance guy. I was texting him and he rides bikes, uh, like bicycles. Uh, He's not that cool like a Harley guy. He's riding bicycles, but he rides like 100 miles a week. And I'm going, how are you riding in this weather? And he goes, I got to get up really early and put in the miles. He goes, because I ride to eat. And that's his line, I ride to eat. Uh, And so that's how we live. Like, man, everything, almost everything in our lives is organized around food and meals. Uh, Jill and I got to go on a little double date the other night, and uh, we were talking about how everything we do is around meal. We just enjoy eating so much. There is a small little niche group of people, though, that have made uh, what's called intermittent fasting come back into vogue. And so maybe you follow some of those social media uh, fitness influencers that have convinced you maybe, hey, intermittent fasting has got great health benefits. And, And yeah, it probably does. But biblical fasting isn't about physical fitness, right? It's about something much, much deeper, something even much more real to us. So what is biblical fasting? Well, here's a simple definition. It's abstaining from a normal activity, usually eating, for a spiritual purpose. That's it. Abstaining from a normal activity for a spiritual purpose. So fasting is a tool. It's a tool to prioritize your spiritual needs over your physical needs. If you remember back in verse two through four in chapter six, or if you wanna kind of flip back there and look at it, Jesus talked about this act of giving to the poor, that we might give of ourselves. God could use us to give things, to provide the needs of the poor. And so if we think of it this way, fasting is how we learn to recognize our own deepest need and trust God to meet it. So he starts by talking about giving, about meeting other people's needs, and then he kind of centers it with the example of prayer and how we connect to God. And then he deepens that by saying fasting is recognizing our own greatest, deepest spiritual need and trusting God 
to meet it. So that's a simple definition of fasting, abstaining from a normal activity for a spiritual purpose. But where does fasting show up in the Bible? Are there different ways to fast in the Bible? You've probably heard of things like the Daniel fast or these other fasts that have kind of come in vogue to give people physical wellness. But the Bible does give us several kinds of fasting. Here's four. Uh, It talks about an absolute fast and we learn what what to call it. The Bible doesn't say do an absolute fast. We just see people practicing this okay so like for example in Acts chapter 9 uh, the Apostle Paul after he comes to Christ before he becomes the Apostle Paul is trying to, to figure out what's my life purpose <laughs> what, who am I now in Christ and he commits to fasting and he does what we call an absolute fast where he goes without food or water for a brief period of time so if fasting is abstaining from something normal a normal activity Paul goes all the way and says I'm going to fast from food and water for a short period of time now like the pharmaceutical commercials will say consult your doctor if you think fasting absolutely is for you okay this is serious stuff right so usually it's for a very short period of time and you should talk to a medical professional before you engage if you feel like God's calling you to an absolute fast no food or water uh, please do it right consult a doctor the other one is a total fast Sounds just like absolute, right? It's a little bit different. Uh, This is similar to what Jesus did in Luke chapter four before his earthly ministry kicks off. Uh, God takes Jesus into the wilderness and there he is tempted by Satan, but it says he fasts for 40 days and he goes without food. So a total fast is going without food for a short or a long period of time. Uh, You'll see people give uh, advice. In fact, Bill Bright, who started the organization Campus Crusade for Christ several decades ago, has a great resource on fasting, and he kind of promotes this idea of doing a total fast for 40 days. And you think, there's no way I could go 40 days without food. He's practiced it, and for several times he's, he's done it, and he teaches other people how to do it as well. We'll talk about more about what it means for you, but just know that resource is out there. If you just Google uh, Bill Bright fasting, you'll find a great resource. He's got a tool called Seven Steps to, uh, to Completing a Fast, and uh, that's a good resource. Third is, in the Bible, there's the partial fast. I mentioned the Daniel fast. This is where uh, you go without certain kinds of food for a certain amount of time. The story of Daniel in our Old Testament uh, is this, where for a season of his life, because of the circumstances of his life and being removed from uh, his home and into a new world, a new land, new leaders, all this kind of thing, he ends up uh, honoring God by going without certain kinds of food. In his case, he's abstained from delicacies like meat and wine for a period of time. Uh, that's what we call a partial fast. And then uh, without a necessarily biblical example, uh, but a very practical example is just what we might call a non-food fast. Uh, now in the Bible, it's almost always related to food. Uh, and there might be some times uh, where it's a shorter period of time, fasting alongside grief and those kind of, where you might think they're fasting from other things alongside food. But for the most part in the Bible, it's food fasts not fast food, right? Food fasts. But practically speaking, it's good and healthy for us to abstain from normal things for a spiritual purpose, things other than food uh, that we might go without for a period of time. Think social media. Uh, I started this when I, I, the church gave me the great gift of going on sabbatical earlier this summer and I thought I'm just going to get off social media for six weeks Uh, and I started that May 15th Uh, I'm not back on (laughs) I just at six weeks I was like I think I'm just off you know I think I'm off forever and I kind of love it and in fact if 
if you want to like jump on that wagon with me, then I would encourage you to do it because it's, it's, I feel healthier <laughs> without social media. Uh, even our, uh, our Surgeon General are, is starting to say the same kind of thing, by the way, uh, about social media. Maybe not the healthiest thing we can do, but just getting off of it for your health is not why. It's getting off of it for a spiritual purpose. And maybe you want to choose a time, a season of your life where you can abstain from something normal like social media uh, or like uh, TV or as I've done in the past before too is like radio in using my car time where I won't have anything on the radio but try to divert that time to God and give it to him in prayer. That's a great way to fast. So there's four types of fasting that we find. Uh, the Bible doesn't give explicit instructions on how or when to fast, which this is the kind of thing where we go, God, couldn't you have given us a little more? Like, if you give us some more rules, then we can try to follow it, right? But he doesn't. We just see the, the example and the benefits of it. Fasting is never a command in the Bible. God never says, you must fast. We just see it as a beneficial spiritual practice. And there are several reasons for fasting we find in the Bible. Uh, first is, and foremost, is worship which is probably the top reason for fasting, is that we would submit ourselves to God through fasting. Uh, Luke chapter two, there's a prophetess named Anna who is at the temple day and night and she's praying and fasting and God uses her story, which is very brief in Luke chapter two, to help introduce us to Jesus. But it's great that she, we see her story and what she's doing every day. She's going to the temple and she's praying and fasting and she's awaiting the Messiah because Jesus is the king over all. It's an act of worship. And so for us, uh, we fast as an act of worship. It's an expression of devotion. It's the same thing the apostles did in Acts chapter 13 as they prepared for ministry. They they prayed, they fasted, and they worshiped God. In fact, you'll see that Acts chapter 13, those phrases together, fasting and worship. And that's always when we fast an act of worship first and foremost. That's how we say, God, you are more important than fill in the blank. I mean, that's what worship is, right? When we come together, we say, God, you are more important than what I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Uh, God, you are more important uh, than the football game that might be starting here in a few minutes, right? You are more important than my need to sleep in a little bit. God, you are more important. So that's an act of worship. And as we fast, we say, God, you're more important than food. God, you're more important than radio or TV or social media, whatever it might be. God, you're more important. So fasting is worship. Fasting also provides us power over temptation and strength to obey. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Luke chapter four, if you look up the story where Jesus is going into the wilderness to fast for 40 days, it's really interesting because the story starts by saying that Jesus fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. <laughs> Which I love how it just like brings in the humanity of Jesus. Like we know he's all divine, but he's also all human. And this makes it so clear because after 40 days he was hungry. Yeah, yeah, so would we be, we'd be hungry. So Jesus fasted and he was hungry, but then at the end of the story where he pushes through and, and quotes scripture to his enemy, Satan, who tries to tempt him uh, into sin, into, into laying down his kingship, everything, uh, Jesus survives those 40 days, he's hungry, and then it says he returns full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So he's hungry, he's empty, but he's also full. 
This is what fasting does for us. It gives us power over temptation and strength to obey God in all things. Jesus experienced this in Luke chapter four. It also serves to give us the guidance of God, to maybe help us hear God more clearly when we're at a crossroads in life. Again, we see the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter nine. We see the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 14. And when we need guidance, you wanna know what step is next. Fasting is a way that you can sharpen your spiritual ears to hear God more clearly. It's also a time of repentance, a tool to help us with true repentance. In the Old Testament story of Jonah, uh, you remember Jonah and the great fish? Uh, Jonah avoids obeying God. God uh, casts him overboard into this, from this big sea, right, in a, in a storm, and he gets swallowed by a great fish and then delivered to the place God wanted him to go originally, called Nineveh. Well, once Jonah gets to Nineveh, he then proclaims the good news. He tells the Ninevites about the one true God and their need to repent, and their response, led by their leader, is to have a nationwide fast where they are sorrow, sorrowful for the sins of their lives. And so we see this example where fasting helps us come to a point of true repentance. It's also a way that we increase our trust in God. Fasting can just increase your trust in God. It forms us uh, with humility and trust for God to do what only he can do. There's a line in, in the Psalm, uh, Psalm 35, where uh, David says, uh, I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. That whole psalm is about deliverance. It's about David yielding to God so that God could do what only he can do. Also, Judges chapter 20. It's a great story about the Israelites and God, they, them needing God for a military victory. In Judges chapter 20, it says, after the Israelites had fasted and prayed, that the Lord defeated Benjamin in the presence of Israel. Isn't that an interesting way to phrase that? The Lord defeated Benjamin in the presence of Israel. They fasted and trusted for God to do what only he could do. So it's a way to increase our trust in God. Uh, quick story, Jill and I love college students. You probably hear me say that a ton in August because we just love that students are back. Uh, but while we were living in South Dakota planting churches, we had the privilege of doing college ministry. And uh, uh, we, we thought we really know how to do this. Like we got this, you know. Uh, and in my years in Waco, we had been in college ministry uh, and served in a church where our, our ministry was like a thousand college students. I mean, it's wild. And so then we moved to South Dakota where there's zero and uh and we're like we got this we know how to do this ministry so we put all this money into this first big event we invited hundreds and hundreds of college students uh to this great ministry opportunity on campus like we went to where they were we did all the right things two people showed up one at a time <laughs> and one of them was the girlfriend of the first one because he was like I feel weird I think I need to call my girlfriend again <laughs> and we were so discouraged but what could we do we try again, we try in our own power, and no. Uh, the Lord led us to a time where we would take Thursdays at lunch uh, in, in the city park. We would walk down from our house to the park and we would, instead of eating together, we just had a list of things that we knew only God could do for that ministry, things that we could not do, specific prayer requests that we wanted to see him fulfill. And we would pray all summer, every Thursday, for the coming August ministry season. And God built a ministry there. God reached people for Christ. It was amazing to be a part of that because we knew 
after a season of fasting that it was not us. It wasn't our acumen or our knowledge or our experience. It was simply increasing trust in the Lord. And I'll tell you that just to prove that point. Finally, uh, fasting is a way to strengthen your prayer. Strengthen your prayer life. It strengthens your connection with God. I, I mentioned Psalm 35. I'll read it for you again. Psalm 35, 13 says, I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. That's from David, the king, the king of Israel. The literal translation of that second half, my prayer was genuine, could be read this, that prayer returned to my chest. Isn't that interesting? Do you ever feel like prayer is just not connecting? Do you ever feel like your prayer like doesn't go above the ceiling or you get distracted really easy in prayer or whatever it is that you feel like I want to pray, I want to know God in that way, I want to communicate with him, but it's just not happening. You start to feel guilty. I just tell you, fasting might be a tool that you can employ to strengthen your prayer life for prayer to return to the, your chest, to the deepest part of who you are. Wouldn't that be interesting? So it's not surprising to Jesus uh, or to us that Jesus would teach on fasting immediately following the section on the Lord's Prayer. Remember, he just spent the last several verses talking about how to pray. Fasting is a deepening of this understanding of prayer. So the Sermon on the Mount, central point is prayer, and then the very next thing is fasting. It's how do we take that to the next level, right? What is Jesus teaching us about fasting? So look back at Matthew chapter 6, and now that we have this kind of general understanding of fasting and what it is and what it could be, let's look at what Jesus teaches us, okay? So starting in Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Jesus is saying there's a wrong way to fast, a hypocritical way to fast. When we say hypocrite, what we tend to mean is that there's someone that we know uh, who is saying one thing and doing another. And that's like, that. we love to just like, I say we, people love to just lob that accusation, especially at Christians, right? Because it seems like we're, you know, supposed to be holier than thou, but then they realize the truth is that we're really not. And so they go, oh, you're just hypocrites. And we'd probably be a lot better off if we just said, yeah, we are hypocrites. Thank God for his grace and mercy in our lives that we come to him through Jesus Christ, right? We've said this week after week as we study Matthew chapter six. Well, again, Jesus says these hypocrites, but he's not talking about people who just say one thing and do another. The word hypocrite in Jesus's time literally meant actor. So think of your favorite actor or actress and the roles they've played. It's so interesting to me when you see the same person playing different roles throughout their career. And you can kind of think back and go, oh, that's weird that they played that role. I think about Will Smith, like from his start in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to then like, um, uh, what's the movie? I Am Robot or something. They're just completely different characters. I think that's the right movie. I could be wrong. But Will Smith has had this like wide range of, but he's the same guy. He's just playing different roles. Well, this is what Jesus means when he says, Hypocrite. He's saying actor. It's the person who wants someone else to believe they are something than they are not. Jesus is saying where we might call someone a hypocrite after they do something bad, Jesus is saying hypocrisy happens when someone does the right thing 
for the wrong reasons. That's what he's saying. He says these people even go to great lengths to get the attention of men. They would even make themselves unattractive. Other translations might say they disfigure their faces to appear as if they have been fasting. Remember our friends at Baylor who actually dressed themselves up to appear righteous? This is kind of the opposite. They would dress themselves down to appear righteous. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the actor who spends all day in the hair and makeup trailer putting on a mask just to film one scene. We're not putting on a show for people. We're living for Christ. And fasting is a spiritual tool that can lead to true righteousness or from true righteousness because there is a right way to fast. And this is what Jesus follows us up with. Look at verse 17 into the beginning of verse 18. Jesus says, when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others. Put oil on your head, wash your face. These things aren't so normal to us, but the instruction is simple. Jesus is saying here in terms that his first century audience would understand that when you fast, just be normal. Uh, just be normal. Don't draw attention to yourself for the act of fasting. Why? Well, because the, for the third time in chapter 6, Jesus is making the same point, right? That the righteousness of Jesus comes to us from the outside in and then changes us from the inside out. So a truly righteous life starts with the right motive, not the right motions. This is what Jesus is getting at. And this is his third example. He went from giving to the poor to prayer to now fasting. True righteousness starts with the right motive, not the right motions. And the right motive is devotion to God, which yields a benefit far greater than any positive attention from people. Which leads us to the end of verse 18, the reward. He says, so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus repeats a third time in chapter six, true righteousness is rewarded. Yeah, there's benefits to fasting. There's benefits in the here and now to fasting as a spiritual practice. Think about it. Think about things like answered prayer. Think about things like freedom from sin, power over temptation, confidence for God's purpose for your life. There's all kinds of great benefits for spiritual a discipline like fasting in your life in the here and now. But Jesus is pointing us to something even better than that. If you go back to verse one of chapter six, you see that Jesus is saying the reward is with your father in heaven. So God holds the reward. God is in charge of the reward and God is keeping the reward secure for our future life eternally with him. This is the good reward. And in each of the three examples, Jesus' promise then is that God will reward you. I wish I could tell you what that reward is. What I can tell you is that whatever I might tell you would not be good enough for what is actually coming. I cannot come up with the words to accurately describe, describe the reward from God for a truly righteous life from receiving the righteousness of Jesus and letting it transform you from the inside out, I can't describe it. And that may be what Matthew was thinking as well. 
but it's promised and it's coming. It's held by God and it's coming to you. This is what David Mathis says about fasting related to this. He says it this way, Christians can freely practice fasting in this life because of the promise of the life to come. We don't have to get it all in now. You ever feel that pressure to squeeze something in? I think about a summer's ending and the school year's coming. Let's just do one more fun thing. Let's just take the kids out to do one more. Let's just get one more good meal. Let's have one more day to sleep in. We just keep trying to squeeze it all in. David Mathis says we don't have to get it all in now because we have a promise that we will have it all in the coming age. This is good, good news, right? And all of this, by the way, is an echo of how the sermon started. Do you remember the truly blessed life? The Beatitudes, the beginning part of Matthew chapter 5 in verse 6. This is what's recorded. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the good news. The question is, what are you most hungry for? What are you most hungry for today? Are you hungry for a relationship? Are you hungry for a, a new position at work? Are you hungry for success on a field? Uh, are you hungry for maybe a sin that has been lurking underneath? Are you hungry to be more attractive, to have a better body? Whatever it is that you might be hungry for, what Jesus is calling us to is a hunger for righteousness, the righteousness that only comes from God with the promise you will be filled because you can pursue all those other things to the end of your days and never be fulfilled. You can achieve all the things you want to the end of your days and never be fulfilled. But Jesus says, if you hunger for the righteousness of God, you will be filled. That is the way to the good life. We receive this righteousness from Jesus. We don't achieve it right? It's a righteousness that comes from the outside in. It transforms us from the inside out. And that is when we experience the truly good life under the rule and reign of God as partners in his kingdom. So how do you get there? Go back to chapter five. This is how I'll close today. Chapter five, verse one. There's three groups of people at play here in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Well, if you back up into chapter 4, you see that there's a whole group of people who witnessed what Jesus was, uh, was able to do. They witnessed his power. They witnessed his miracles. They saw what he was able to accomplish by the power of God. And yet, when Jesus walked up the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount, they stayed put. They're like, I saw it. It's good. That's enough for me. I'm going to stay put. It's not going to really change me. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. Second group of people is the crowds that followed him up the mountain. There were people who saw what he did, maybe were personally impacted by the miracle. Maybe it was a friend or a family member that they brought to him that he healed. Who knows? But they followed him up the mountain to go, what does this guy have to say? I want to see what this guy's all about. I want to learn a little bit more. And that crowd formed around him. But right up close to him are the ones who followed him and sat down at his feet, his disciples, those who were committing their lives to follow him. 
So the call today, you want to experience the truly good life, is to move from the crowd who might be somewhat interested in Jesus to the committed, to giving your life in faith to Jesus Christ. It's to move from the fringe to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. So how will you respond? We're gonna close today with a song and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond. In fact, while we close, I'm just gonna be right in the back of the room. A couple other folks there with me. If you'd like to put faith in Jesus Christ, to move from crowd to committed, we wanna help you do that because that is the only way to experience eternal life with God and the truly blessed life here and now. Can I pray for you? And then we'll sing and we'll end our time together. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. Thank you for the example and the teaching of Jesus on true righteousness. When I think about true righteousness, I realize how broken and sinful I am, yet I am so thankful that Jesus freely gives me forgiveness and he implants his righteousness into my life so that I can be made right with you, God. What a gift that is. I pray that everyone would experience that here today and that from the outflow of that, God, we would come to know you in a closer, deeper way, maybe even through fasting. Thank you, God, that you would want to commune with us, that you want to know us, and that you made a way for us to know you. God, our response today is by faith. Help people have courage to take it. In Jesus' name, amen.